Greetings, everybody. This is David Avocado Wolf, and I am here to introduce a very interesting speaker, trainer, and gastronaut. This person is Don Tallman, and he's written many books on a variety of skill-specific mental functions and self-improvement topics. His latest project is the highly acclaimed Pharmacist Desk Reference. That's F-D-R, F-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T, the Pharmacist Desk Reference is a definitive compendium of humanity's relationship to life and vitality using whole plant foods as preventative and remissive medicine. Don Tolman has spoken to more than a 1,000 audiences in all 50 of the U.S. states and in seven foreign countries, and he's been a return guest on The Donahue Show, Entertainment Tonight, ABC Talk Radio, and he's a regular guest on The Aware Show in Los Angeles, California. We love The Aware Show. Great, great operation there. Um, Don Tolman is going to be speaking at our Longevity Now conference at the Orange County Hilton in Costa Mesa, California, Friday, April 1st through Sunday, April 3rd, right here in 2011. And at the conference, he will be speaking on healing through whole foods, how to keep your body in balance using food as your medicine. How are you doing, Don Tolman? Doing really good, David. I appreciate you uh, doing this with me. It's nice to be with somebody so famous. Geez, I mean, I, I don't know how, I, how I, I'm more famous than you. I, I remember seeing you at many of these shows years ago and first picking up your pharmacist desk reference. And, uh, it, you know, since then I've been friends with your son, Tyler, the lifestyler. <laughs> That's him. <laughs> He's great. He told me some wild stories about you and, and your life, and I'd love to hear about how you got into all this. So why don't you tell us, how did you get started in healing with whole foods and a little bit about your journey? And then we'll dive into some some of the stuff that's in your FDR. Oh, cool. I was actually born into a family. All of my family were obese, uh, except me and my brother Tom. I mean, and by obese, I mean my sister. Uh, today she weighs 640 pounds. She's institutionalized, and they have to lift her with a crane to go in and bathe her and stuff. And it's just uh, they were always sick, always going to the doctors, always going to the hospitals. And as I was growing up, I don't know what it was, uh, but I just had a natural love and affinity for apples and peaches and all the stuff that was just growing fresh in, you know, in the season as we went through the year. And I don't know why. But the the smell of any kind of meat animals just turned me off. And, of course, my dad used to threaten me a lot and make me sit at the table till midnight and trying to get me to do all kinds of stuff. And I don't know what it was. It was like I, I just didn't find the foods that they were eating and the things they were drinking appealing. And so I was the nutcase in the family, as they used to call me. And so, and finally, uh, just before my ninth birthday, I had uh, been invited to attend a little church uh, in our little town just nearly every Sunday for over four years, and I just kept refusing to go. I didn't know what Sunday school was, and I finally caved in and went once, and I heard a story out of the Judeo-Christian literature, which I later learned they were reading out of the King James Version of a Bible it was Daniel chapter 1 and talked about a king Nebuchadnezzar and how he had set up an encampment and brought young people in and was going to teach them the tongue of the Chaldeans and all of his learned men was going to teach them the sciences of the day. And, and uh, But there were four kids uh, that had been drawn in 
and they refused the king's sweet meats and dainties and all the stuff. And they said, look, just give us pulse to eat and water to drink. And at the end of 10 days of just being on pulse and water, they were brighter in their countenance, stronger in their flesh. And so those that were over them took away the allotment of the king's food and just let them eat pulse and water. At, at the very end of the story, he says that at the end of the three-year encampment, the king interviewed all of those in the camp, and nobody even came close to these four kids. And in fact, he found them 10 times better in all of the sciences than all of his own learned men. And so they continued with the king and Senate Council of his empire, uh, clear up to the time of King Cyrus. Well, I hear this little story, and it just blows my mind. So I want to know what Pulse was, and no one knew. It's still controversial what Pulse means. Is it beans? Is it grain? What what does Pulse mean? So I'm, I'm interested in hearing where you're going with this. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I that's what I had heard. I mean, the, you know, some records say that Pulse, uh, in the King James Version, was referring to fruit. Others say that it was vegetables. Others say that it's uh, leguminous plants like beans and lentils and seeds and things like that. And so because there was no definite definition, I started digging in deeper and deeper and started going to different leaders of different religions. And, I mean, it was a passion of mine. I was going to find this thing, you know, come hell or high water. That's what I wanted. I wanted to find out what this was. So it eventually took me to, gosh, I don't know, about 17 different countries. They've been divided today, so there'd be double that. But uh, I went to the Collections Nationale of Europe. I went uh, to Egypt. I went down to Machu Picchu. I run into the Incas. I talked to all these different groups. I got lexicons and dictionaries and reference materials. I talked to the curators of the collections. and. Finally, after learning so much about whole foods and how they really did act as medicines and healing uh, to people's bodies from these ancient cultures and even some of the cultures that still live it to this day, um, I finally quit, gave up. Two years later, accidentally found it in a private collection that I had been invited to. Uh, it goes back to a Hebraic term the Zeorgim, the most sacred meal. Uh, there's a 42-page document that had been transliterated. And so I read the document, pulled out a lexicon, checked the manuscript, and finally found uh, the ingredient list, uh, the seven mouths, the seven witnesses that it talked about that affirmed uh, the correctness and the efficacy of the meal and how it targeted uh, the entire construct of the human body in a singular meal and why it was considered so sacred in the ancient world. Came across, found out that Pythagoras uh, and the Pythagorean Academy also ate that meal just prior to the Olympic Games anciently. And the Inca had their version of it. It was all based on the same geometries or signatures of these foods in the region in which you lived. And so all of the different cultures had this meal based upon the same principles. It was very, very fascinating. So are, this is this is great. So are you going to reveal to us what this meal is? Or are you going to save that for the conference or, you know, the suspension? You know what? Yeah, you know what? I will bring samples. I would like people to taste this, you know, five, 6,000-year-old meal. Of course, it won't be dusty. It'll be fresh made. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
you know. But I already thought about that. I'd I'd love to bring it. I'll make a big old batch up and bring samples. Let people taste it. It's it's spectacular the way that it tastes, and when it's done for little children and and everything in between, right up to centurions and what it what it does for people. It's just really fun. It's really fun. That's great. I mean, this whole thing is so much fun. And and your your desk reference is a lot of fun. It's very well put together, and it's just entertaining reading. You can open up to any section and just just jump into it. And I opened up to a section um, on cancer research. So I want you to comment on this. You had a quote in there by Dr. Mitchell Gaynor, and this is what he said. He said, "quote We've seen the future of cancer research, and the future is food." And I'd love to hear your angle on the top cancer fighting foods today, and what you mean by by that phrase that's in there by Dr. Gaynor. Yeah, uh, Dr. Mitchell Gaynor, he is a friend. He and I have spoken on stage together. Uh, he is the uh, one of the leading oncologists, and he's a director of the New York Strain Cancer Clinic. Uh, he's a molecular biologist and hematologist at Cornell Medical. And the reason he and I wound up on stage is because we have such a similar message that the future of cancer research is people are going to discover the reason you get cancer is because of the things that you're eating and drinking and putting on your hair and skin that you think is food and or good for you. And in fact, it creates toxicity in the body. And the other half of that is there are foods that when they are eaten and or made into beverages, cancer cannot exist in the body. The word cancer, if you look it up, means rot and decay and that can go off into a huge discussion but I hope to have that uh, with you and the people there at the um, longevity now you know and go deep into that so there's no misunderstanding and I want people to understand this whole idea of cancer cells going into multiplication and replication and what it is that triggers the stopping of that. And to understand this idea of disease or discomfort in the body once and for all with simple clarity. What, what are your favorite anti-cancer foods? What would you say? Like somebody listening right now, they're like, okay, I got lunch. What do I, what do I want to put in it? Yeah. You know, it's, it, in the whole thing about the anatomical sites or physiological functions that seem to have tissues and or the growth of, and swellings uh, of lymphatic ducts and other things is the number one thing to target that kind of stuff is, le- is yellow foods. Uh, and we'll get into that deeper there as well. But lemons, for instance, uh, lemons, you go back into the etymologies of that food and it literally meant the sun and moon at one period, and today they know that lemons are the only food on the face of the earth that has anionic orbit. It's the only food that they've ever discovered that has that. So it's a reverse spin of all other foods, and it breaks down, undoes, and makes the environment for anaerobic microbes who are overwhelming the aerobic microbes uh, to go into overpopulation, creating inflammation, infections, swelling, and then the beginning of a rotten decay of tissue. And so to me, 
lemons is going to be one of the things that we're really going to talk about and get deeper into. And then you back that up and support it uh, with other yellow foods, such as, you know, yellow onions, yellow apples, uh, even garlic, uh, and yellow peppers and, you know, things like that. Just support it with the yellow foods. It's That's the number one target of those conditions. I once met a a guy who'd been a vegetarian since 1961 at a retreat center. I was about to do an event and he showed up in the hallway and I ran into him and, and he knew me. So we started talking and he told me about a story and, and he was, he was another gastronaut. He's obviously been exploring diets since, since the fifties. And I said, what do you think is the best food ever? And he said, lemon, lemon's the best food ever. Eat a lemon every day. So I've been taking that to heart. I thought it was good advice, and it sounds like you're corroborating that. Now, besides yeah. cancer and preventing rot with yellow foods and developing that fortification against disease, the big disease in America still is heart disease. I mean, it's still like neck and neck with cancer. What do you think about the healthy heart? What are we supposed to eat for that? You know, the whole idea of the circulatory system, and at the very end of all of the smallest, smallest capillaries and the heart sends out tubes uh, over 250,000 miles of them that we refer to as veins and arteries and capillaries and different things. At the very end of that is the lymphatic stream, which is the cleansing stream. So you have a circulatory stream bringing gases and nutrient, uh, and then you have the lymphatics, which is the house cleaning. And so as you start to look at the foods that can target the healing and repair and remissives of disorder and dysfunction to the heart. Uh, again, I believe that it goes back to such a brilliant, brilliant wisdom of the ancient past referred to as the law of similarities. And it was the scholars of the ancient classical period of Rome and others from other parts of the world that gathered there uh, and they of course, built the Alexandrian Library to record and keep all of the observational wisdom that had been collected for future generations. And of course, that was burned and destroyed in 326 AD, and all of the scholars that had brought that together, as far as we know, most of them were murdered at that time. But what they had found was this law of similarities, or the signum natura in the Latin, the doctrine of signatures, that the geometries that exist in nature, uh, whether it's in plants or animals uh, or rocks or what have you, that there's a law of attraction, that a thing like unto itself is drawn. And so you look at the shape of the heart and the construct of it, and you start to see the foods that have that same geometric construction, and you're looking at foods that in the ancient world was believed and shown uh, through observational wisdom over time and distance of the human experience to be right on the money. And now there are uh, places such as Johns Hopkins and Cornell and Port Medical and others that are looking at this and realizing, wow, this is a brilliant wisdom. So you would look at a tomato. A tomato is red. You cut it. It has chambers just like heart. And you can go on the American Heart Association's website, and it'll even openly confirm, yeah, tomatoes are no doubt heart food, but then so are beets. You look at a beet and think of the heartbeat, and you go into that thing and see the rings and the way this thing is constructed, 
you're looking at the cellular construction of the heart and the heart muscles itself. Cherries, same thing. Grapes, they hang in clusters, look just like the heart, each of the grapes. Uh, the red ones look like they represent red blood cells. You know, the white ones, you know, look like the neuroimmune cells and the poor lymphatic cells. You look at a strawberry, same geometric pattern of the heart, mangoes. Uh, and then you can also even take a look at apples and see the similar patterns. So to me, those would be some of the top heart foods. And then you can get into the slicing a grapefruit and looking at the cellular construct of that. And we have had people scheduled for quadruple bypass open heart surgeries who decided to refuse it, even though they were told they would probably be dead within just days and possibly even weeks. And they started eating two to three grapefruits every single morning, knock off all the crap food and and the medications they've been on and different things. And the ones that have had the courage to do that, and we, we have plenty of people who give their testimonies to this, within 90 days, they don't even have a heart problem. None, zero, zip. If you have clogged arteries, the acids in grapefruit, and you can test this yourself, it'll break down the accumulated masses of fats and plaque. And you can take grapefruit juice, put in a quarter cup of olive oil, and, and most liquids will just float to the top, and you can take that and shake it, and it stays in solution. And it's just, it's just brilliant looking at this law of similarities and signatures of foods. It, it's true. It's sounding really good right now. <laughs> I'm done daydreaming about grapefruit juice. We, we had uh, over at my house, one of the guys who's working here, he, he uh, brought in a pitcher of grapefruit juice. I think it was yesterday, right at the right time. And it was amazing. Just hydrating, pure mana glowing in that pitcher. And it's such a pleasure to have that fresh juice. And I think grapefruit really has has – it had a moment there in like the seventies where it was like you have grapefruit in the morning and they even had those grapefruit spoons. You remember those days? Yeah. And it, it kind of fell out a little bit. It kind of fell out a little bit. So maybe we can get it going back again. Hey, grapefruit for breakfast and grapefruit yeah. juice get a revival happening. Let's jump into digestion because obviously you're going to at our conference, you're going to be talking a lot about all of these things, cancer and um, heart disease and also digestion. And I'd love to hear your take on, Healthy digestion. What what is it that creates healthy digestion? How do we overcome the constipation, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, the colitis, and what what do we what should we what improves digestion? Yeah, you know this whole thing of digestive problems within the alimentary canal. Uh, what happens is typically the ecology uh, of the gut and oftentimes in the stomach itself gets out of balance. And so the good microbes, as most of us have heard them called, as opposed to the bad microbes, uh, get out of balance, and it's important to reestablish that balance. And then the food fibers that are in real plant foods, uh, there's seven known nutritional fibers, and you can target the stripping of the entire mucosal lining of the alimentary canal and I have these on videos, and I, I want to show them there as part of my presentation. We have people that do very specific things, and the mucosal lining will come out 
oftentimes in one movement and you can stretch the thing out and measure it and it runs anywhere from 16 feet to almost 30 feet and you can take a razor plate and slice it open and the things that you find in there are so disgusting sometimes anything from round worms to tapeworms to pockets of liquid mercury from mercurial medicines that they were on and it just goes on and on and on but when people have these digestive problems, oftentimes they don't realize they're eating foods that can have melamine, uh, which was finally exposed as in a lot of the pancake mixes, which is just ground up asbestos, uh, semolina, and all these other different things in white uh, flour products. Uh, and then it just goes from there. There are just so many additives and preservatives and toxic uh, things that are put into foods that no longer have to even be listed on the label. And so when you're walking in and you're eating fake food and drinking fake drinks and for, you know, to be stimulated or this or that, you're setting yourself up for these kinds of problems. But, you know, if you just go in and you target, okay, what can help clean this up? If I'm constipated, if I'm having irritable bowel or whatever, a lot of people have forgotten. It can be as simple, honestly, as eating plums, and you can dry them into prunes. Uh, gosh, that, you know, and when I was a kid, everybody knew that if you're constipated, just eat some prunes. Uh, eat some fresh plums right off the tree outside. And, and yet today, a lot of people don't even, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, but then you can start throwing other things in that have the natural um, mucinogens, and uh, such as flax seeds, um, okra. Uh, if you look at string beans, it almost looks like the anatomical drawings uh, of the colon. You know, with the little constrictions every so far, and and so you start eating those kinds of of foods. And even spaghetti squash and some of the squashes and the way that the fibers and the signatures of those things target different parts of the alimentary tract uh, to reestablish the ecology of the gut. It comes down to fermented foods. There's nothing more brilliant to establish digestive health, honestly, than to have fermented foods. And every culture anciently had their own foods and even beverages that they would ferment, and they did it for purposes of health and healing. I, I'm so glad to hear you talk about okra. I just about fell over when you said that. Hardly anyone talked about okra. I mean, raw okra is yeah. unreal. It's, it I, I is the whole unreal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We used to eat it all the time when we lived out in the Carolinas, Tennessee, Good grief. I come out here to Park City, Utah now, and it's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I've never heard of it. I know. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And it still grow out there. I've grown it in the desert of Arizona. I've grown it at our farm in Canada. We've grown it in Hawaii. It just grows everywhere, and it's it's that mucilage, right? So that's also in chia seed. You said flax seed, but our group really loves chia seed. What's your feeling about chia seed for digestive wellness? I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And even as you get into hemp seeds, you know, you, those are the kinds of things that's going to reestablish and, and cleanse. 
Yeah, I agree. Now let's let's jump off of digestion and let's go into an area that is almost an epidemic problem in the Western world, and it's infertility and reproductive health. And I'd love to get your angle on that because we've got, we've seen a loss of libido. Obviously, there's massive infertility. There's massive reproductive problems like ovarian cysts, um, testicular cancers. Where where are we going with all that? And, and what's what's the whole food solution, the day to day eating solution to deal with reproductive disorders? from your perspective and from the perspective of the doctrine of signatures? Yeah. You know, our, our ancestors, they were brilliant. They understood. Uh, and it was even talked about so often that there's really just simply one disease and there's only two causes. Truly, all disease or disorder starts at the subatomic and atomic levels, and Democritus and others talked about it. Of course, they call it atomos in the Greek, but... Anything that creates an atomic uh, chaos because of the electrochemical frequency of that thing ratchets up and creates a chaos at the molecular level and then a chaos at the cellular level and then a chaos uh, within organs and or uh, physiological function. And there's only two causes of that disorder and that number one is toxicity in the body and number two is insufficiency. And as you get into toxicities and why so many people uh, can no longer be, uh, ha- you know, fertile and have reproductive health, you start looking at the chemicals that are infused into skin creams, into acne creams, into, uh, you know, like the dioxins that they put into feminine pads and all of these things are there to create a disease response. I mean, there's a lot of money in IVF, and you start getting deeper and deeper into this, and I don't mean to sound like, you know, some kind of a conspiracy theory nut, even though I guess that's what I'm known as. But we could take, <laughs> we could take these different products and the things that are going on, and now they're infusing it into uh, fabric soaps for laundry. And so a lot of times people are starting to get skin disorders because of the infusion of the chemicals that are put right into the laundry soap. And then they sleep in it under their sheets and they sit there and they use perfumes and colognes that have the thiolates and other chemicals that lead to infertility. So, you know, so how do you back out? How do you get back into being fertile? Because you can, the body can, can heal itself. And to me, it comes back to this idea of understanding the plants themselves. Uh, today's research uh, has posted that they now have over 200,000 identifiable proteins. They also know that every single plant on the face of this earth has all 200,000 identifiable proteins. It's just in different volumes and concentrations. Hormones are just one type or category of these proteins, but it's these plant proteins that contain the building blocks of the hormones that are necessary to allow for fertility, for sperm and ovum to be at full capacitance and connect into pollinization or fertility. And as you start looking at the different plants that heal and repair and bring fertility back into the human experience, 
uh, again, it goes back to oftentimes this geometry in the law of similarity. And so for men, and, you know, I hope this doesn't come across too crude, but for men it would be bananas, cucumbers, figs, because when figs grow they hang in twos and look, you know, they're full of seeds and they're like male testicles. And then you can look at kiwi fruit. That targets the male construction of the of the hormone and the function of fertility. Uh, peanuts. Most people don't even realize that peanuts were banned by the Church of England to any of its members because they found out that the peanuts not only created fertility, but it uh, created the libido and the ability for erection and all that kind of stuff. And of course, researchers a few years ago, got looking into that, and they found out that it has L-arginine. Of course, they synthesize it and make Viagra out of it, and on and on and on. But you'd be better off just eating the peanuts. And then uh, mushrooms, if you look at the signature of some of the mushrooms, it literally looks like, you know, the male penis. You know? And then for women, uh, you start to look at the plants that look like the womb and cervix and or even any of the female things are going on, you know. So what does an olive look like? It, it looks like an ovary. And it mean, it's all live. And you go back into the history of that name and you find out that it was literally a feminine uh, food for that kind of targeting. The pomegranate, another feminine food. The pear, it looks like the womb and cervix. Avocado, the womb and cervix. Eggplant, the womb and cervix. Passion fruit. And anciently, they believed that each of us, each person, is created and designed in a way that we have masculine and feminine qualities, that we have a left and a right, a yin and a yang. And so all of these foods are good for each of us. But when it comes to this idea of fertility, we are to look at those foods and target that end of it, and it's the proteins in those foods that have the building blocks to heal and to repair the function of the egg and of the sperm. And it works. It really does work. Wow. That, I, I'm so glad to hear you naming all these different things off, from avocado to pear to passion fruit. So you, you mentioned bell peppers back when we were talking about yellow-colored foods. You touched on oh. yellow apples. There's just so many amazing foods. And I think sometimes people get stuck on iceberg lettuce and conventionally grown bland tomatoes. And, of course, the great yeah. pharmacopoeia is so much greater and it's so much more delicious than that. I want to ask you about what you eat. What, what's your, what do you like to have every day? What's your diet like? And what are your favorite foods? You know, my favorite foods, uh, I, I really like to follow the uh, seasons because I live in an area where I have all four seasons. I live in Parks, Silly, Utah, I tell people. Anyway, I, I love uh, on a weekly basis, uh, and it goes back to, again, ancient times and the measures of time. And they understood the lunar calendar, and so there were 13 28-day moons that added up to the 364 days of the year. And there's such a history behind the number 13 and how it 
tied into all of this and why the 13 colonies and everything. And it'll be fun to bring all that out at the conference, but just the seven days of the week, sun's day, moon's day, and then Tuesday and look at the history behind the planet there, Wednesday, same thing, you know, Thursday, same thing like Thor's day or Jupiter's day and Freedom's day or Venus day and Saturn's day. And so these seven days or dias, uh, the measures of time tied back into what Pythagoras and others discovered and wrote about, the seven notes of an octave. And that tied into what they believed were the seven doors of the heavens from the throat to the top of the head. You have seven openings, two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, a mouth. And the seven colors of that rainbow, the textures, the smells, the taste, the crunch when you chew them, and so what I really love to do, and I don't mean to spend so much time on that, but so what I try to do is on each of the days of the week, target more colors that match that day. But each day, I make sure that I eat a red food, orange food, yellow food, green food, and then a combination of the three blue and the gold violets. And I, I'm a snacker. Uh, I've come to realize that the ancient wisdom of uh, the less you eat, the longer you live. The less you eat, the better you feel. The less you eat, the stronger you feel. You know, and, it, and I have discovered that over time for myself. It, it really is a correct principle. So, so I like to try to follow just eating the seven colors and crossing the rainbow bridge, which at the end was the pot of gold, which was the symbol of the human body in its highest capacity of health and function. And I love that. That's awesome. Wow. You're everybody listening, that's Don Tallman speaking to you, and I'm David Avocado Wolf. And I want to thank you, Don, for sharing with us a little bit of your insight into food and the fun you have with food. You're, it sounds like you are a real food investigator, a true gastronaut in the original sense. I love and, that um, gastronaut. Did you come up with that? Did you come up with that's that? That's an old one from – actually, no, that was a, an article that was done on the raw food scene back about 15 years ago. And I love it. The name of the article was something like Invasion of the Gastronauts. And I thought, yeah, that's a good term. I'm picking that up. So I lifted it from there, and I've been using it ever since. <laughs> I love it, Thank you. Don, you're rocking. You're you're like you're like traveling around, doing a lot of different events and turning people onto Whole Foods and I'm so glad you could do this at the event because I got tired of talking about celery. I have to be completely honest with you. I mean I got, you know, apples, it was like I was up to my ears in apples and I love grapefruit <laughs> juice, but you know, there's only so many thousands of lectures you can do on grapefruits. Um, but you're picking up the slack and doing a heck of a job. And it's awesome. And you're going to be doing that at our Longevity Now conference. And that, by the way, for the, those folks who are listening, is you can check it out on www.thelongevitynowconference.com. All four of those words together, thelongevitynowconference.com. And it's going to be at the Orange County Hilton in Costa Mesa, California, the weekend of Friday, April 1st through Sunday, April 3rd. And uh, Don Tallman will be not only joining us, but he'll be happy to interact with you and serve us some of his pulse, which I'm excited to eat and, and hear about that extraordinary ancient five to 6,000-year-old recipe. Thank you, Wolfman. <laughs> no, I just right. want to say thanks. <laughs> You're awesome, and I so look forward to it and, and look forward to meeting 
uh, so many of you and getting deeper into all of this. Thank you so much. All right.